Hey guys, what's up? It is week 298, getting closer to closer to 300. Don't have anything planned for 300, but I probably will have one planned for 312 because that will be the sixth year anniversary of the weekly show format. Um, let's hop right into the reviews. Have a handful for you, some new releases and stuff like that. Um, so this one here is from On Earth Films. This is from 2008, I believe, originally. And this is Invitation Only. And if not mistaken, when was this? Yeah, it's, uh, I believe, a, a Chinese film, if I'm not mistaken. So this one was kind of like... Uh, a film that had kind of like extreme kind of, uh, you know, uh, bend to it. And I had heard about it for a long time and I never actually did get a chance to check it out. So when On Earth was putting it out, it's pretty excited. You know, On Earth releases a lot of wild things. And they had a great last year. They're probably going to have a good year this one too. So, uh, yeah. Anyways, invitation only. So, you know, Hostel came out like 2005, 2006. And we had like kind of a big boom with that and Saw where people would call them torture porn right now that's like a term it's like whatever it's just kind of like a derogatory term towards horror films it's like if it's a good film it's a good film regardless if you enjoy it you enjoy it okay don't let them label things to automatically hate it you know what i mean i understand those movies are for people certain people but this is generally kind of in the style of a hostel or live feed by ryan nicholson if you haven't seen that one so essentially what you have here um, this one does kind of have, I guess, a little bit more, I would say, more depth than Life Feed, but I, I think it's kind of the same kind of message in a lot of ways compared to, like, Hostel. So we have the ultra-rich preying upon the poor. Um, and one day we have this uh, this cab driver. He's not a cab driver. He's like a limousine driver, and he's supposed to pick up this rich guy. He uh, is a little late, um, and basically the, the billionaire, millionaire tells him, hey, I have this party to go to. I don't want to go. Just take my spot. Go as my cousin. Tell everybody your cousin. You have this certain amount of money to spend. So he goes there, and he's having like kind of a, a great time. It's a very strange place. And before long, he realizes, you know, he's there for a, a different reason than the party. He meets a group of other people that are very similar to him, and we learn who they are and why they're there. And pretty soon, they're in a fight for their, uh, you know, survival. Uh, people are picked off and taken to, you know, places and and tortured and mutilated in front of others there's big piles of nasty you know uh thrown away body parts limbs and disembowelments and stuff like that there's a pretty gnarly uh kind of face reconstruction here a couple really nasty throat slits all that kind of stuff the practical effects are really solid um now i do think there might be some i can't remember if there's any cgi splatter you know there used to be a big hang up back in the day like in 2008 but oh why they were it with cg but it is what it is so i thought the effects were pretty strong pretty solid i thought the story was you know Typical, but effective. I mean, in this kind of vein, it's very much in that kind of, you know, torture, uh, you know, thing. But it's not necessarily, you know, it fits more in the hostile vein because you have the rich people paying the torture people. But this one, it's more personal. And you find the reason why. It's not necessarily just rich people paying for it. It's rich people enjoying it. Uh, definitely, you know, feed upon the, prey upon the poor and everything like that because they want to be something else. And that, that's just kind of disturbing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the bad guys are, are decent. I mean, they're, they're masks. There's a couple kind of main ones yeah but anyways it's a solid movie i had never seen it it's definitely a gore flick uh that i think a lot of people will enjoy for the gore effects and the story's solid like i said the characters are decent and you're pulling 
for them. You never dislike. I really just didn't like any of them. I wanted them all to cover and make. I mean, pull through and make it. As far as the special features are concerned, we have behind the scenes, photo galleries, and trailers. Now, to my understanding, I don't think this ever had a Blu-ray release. I'm not even sure. It must have had a stateside DVD release, um, but I never had got a chance to see it. Um, I think I probably do have a copy sitting over here. But uh, yeah, I thought this one was really solid. I enjoyed it. Um, but it is it kind of exactly what you expect, you know, nasty gore film from, you know, Asia. Uh, but Unearthed doesn't really disappoint, especially when they tackle the Asian stuff or the Unearthed classics. I always really like what they do, and this one is no exception. Uh, I think it's better than Live Feet, which they also put out by Ryan Nicholson. Um, now, it's I don't know. Uh, people probably I probably prefer Hostel to it, to be honest. Now, I know a lot of people are hot and cold in Hostel. I, I do enjoy the first Hostel. But, uh, yeah, this one is in that vein. So if it sounds like it's up your alley, it does uh, deliver on the goods. So, yeah, it's invitation only. Okay, the next one is from um, Sub Rosa Studios, and this is The Day of Destruction. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I think this is a, a movie from a couple years ago. It's definitely made during the COVID times. Now, this is a Japanese film, uh, and this is a short. It's only, what's the rank? 72 minutes, but it, it runs by pretty quick, to be honest. But I'm not really sure. He, here's, here's why I call it a COVID film. And I don't mean it's a COVID film that it's made, you know, in isolation with very minimal actors. Although it does have that aspect to a certain point. Um, it's very, uh, you know allegoric and stuff in, in the COVID way and it's very metaphorical whichever one you want to use I know they're not the same thing but sometimes as an idiot myself I will switch them on accident so essentially what we have is in the very beginning there is everybody's told that this, there's a creature within this cave and whatnot and this person goes in it's like snowing it reminds me of something like you know philosophy of a knife how they have all that snow and that cold feeling in the beginning of that movie so they basically go into this you know just like kind of shut down mine or something and they see this like nasty giant abomination of a creature and this is i guess supposed to be a disease or famine or whatever is going to happen you know and and we fast forward down the line and it seems that everybody's suffering from a virus something that's taking them over this evil that's driving people crazy they're starting to lose their humanity we obviously have this COVID. There's this virus coming on. It's definitely a direct connection here. And we also incorporate all these other kind of characters and all these other things. And it's very, very strange. It's very hard to grasp exactly what is happening uh, on the storyline, to be honest. You get the gist of it. You get that it's just this big metaphorical COVID thing. And they're making a statement on humanity and isolation and insanity and these kind of things that affect each other and people just being awful to each other. It's kind of what they're making a statement on. But as far as like the storyline is concerned, it's bizarre. It's weird. It's wild. I don't really know how to go about it. It is. It's not exactly the most exciting film. It's not. You know, be. It's not a bunch of action set pieces or gore set pieces. It's a bizarre one. It's a weird one. And it's mostly. You know, there are some strange scenes where they obviously are walking around Tokyo in outfits and screaming and doing weird things, which are going to garner some attention, but not much because you know it's Japan. And I don't know if it's Tokyo exactly, but Japan, you know, a lot of people will not pay attention to that kind of shit like they would in New York City. They'd also kind of be like, oh, whatever the fuck, go away. But uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting in a lot of ways and bizarre. Like I said, it's a hard film to talk about. It's a hard film to, you know, kind of, you know, review because I'm not necessarily sure exactly. I, I know what they're going for, but I'm not sure how the story completely unfolds and everything like that. That's the day of destruction. Not to be confused with what was the one from 1980, which was the big kind of japanese american co-production the day of resurrection which is a, a pretty cool film about a virus as well you know kind of the end of the world deal so i mean they probably have some similarities there as a huge cast if anybody's not seen that film 
Okay, this next one is definitely a product of its time, and this is from Arrow Videos, and this is .com for murder. I know there's a couple movies that have similar titles like Fear.com and Murder.com, but this is .com for murder, and it's by, you know, I guess this podcast favorite, a podcast or YouTube favorite here. I cover a lot of his movies. Nico Makarakis, um, who did Island of Death and Zero Boys, and most recently I covered one of his films. What did I cover? Nightmare at Noon. So yeah, I'm glad kind of Arrow's going through his kind of filmography and putting him out on Blu-ray. This is one that I didn't really know about you know Nico is a Greek filmmaker he's a very interesting guy he's always got really kind of I don't want to say he's always got opens he's always got really interesting takes on things so that's always nice this one was made in 2002 it's a kind of a techno thriller you know exactly kind of what you're getting into it has Nakasha Kinski in here that's Klaus Kinski's daughter also has uh what, what is the actress's name I want to make sure I get it right here Nicolette Sheraton, and she was in, I remember her from Beverly Hills Ninja, but it's also got a couple rock stars in here, and Roger Daltrey from The Who, and uh, Huey, um, which one is it, Huey Lewis, uh, one of the guys from Huey Lewis, um, if I'm not mistaken, or is it, it's just Huey Lewis, Huey Lewis, yeah, he's in here, I was thinking Hall and Oates, Huey Lewis, I always confuse Huey Lewis in the news and Hall and Oates, okay, sue me, but it's Huey Lewis, so that's kind of nice, so uh, basically what we have here is this, uh, Roger Daltrey is kind of like this big tech guy, he's rich, and his wife, Nakasha Kinski gets in a, an accident and she's confined to a wheelchair. He sets up the house to have like this big kind of internet kind of deal and high tech stuff. She starts surfing on the internet. She kind of stumbles and starts chatting with this supposed killer. And this killer kind of starts to manipulate the situation and attack people she knows. And eventually he's going to set the sights on her. So um, it's kind of ahead of its time in that aspect. You don't think like Strangeland from 1998 kind of incorporated the internet and picking people up and murder in that aspect. But what this one does, which I thought was unique, it kind of does like the webcam or like the kind of grain weird video footage that you'd send online and I, I think that's kind of like hit a, a creepy nostalgic point for a lot of people I think it's a good time to release this because like uh, a lot of the creepy posters like lost like digital footage and stuff like that and there's a whole slew of movies that had this kind of like low tech like high at the time it was state-of-the-art internet but it was kind of low tech nowadays and you look at it and the footage is grainy and it's kind of like similar to a snuff film you know, like how you have the old snuff films, like or even like 2001, and you have the digital stuff that looks like, you know, August Underground and things like that. So the snuff kind of looks kind of in that vein, and he's sending it online. So that's kind of like right on the beat, right on the pulse, right? Right away, it was kind of hit, hit when the strike, when the iron's hot. I mean, for the most part, it's decent. I mean, it's an okay film. Um, Huey Lewis is better than expected in here. Nakasha Kinski's okay. Um, and, and it has decent set pieces. It's got good production design and stuff like that for the most part. There's nothing really terrible about it. I mean, it's very much a product of its time. It's a, a techno-thriller kind of horror film from 2002 that incorporates technology. So it's dated, but it's dated in a unique kind of interesting way that kind of opens your eyes. Um, as far as this, I mean, as like how far we've come in technology and how like it compares to like you know the fake snuff films at a time and how people are kind of you know focused hyper focused on like creepy lost like video files and shit like this so essentially as far as the special features are concerned we have the making of dot-com murder featurette on making the film dot-com for murder the unknown story new featurette writer producer nico macarasis revisits production audio archival interviews with roger daltrey and huey lewis what's really good about the uh, nico docs is like a lot of them are the old ones but he'll make new stuff for it and he starts going on this like kind of tirade you think it's a tirade at first how people were voting down dot-com for murder on internet movie database and you're like well what what's he talking about is it just like poor reviews that upset him and then he starts talking about how basically you can pay for ratings on internet movie 
movie database to like dog a movie if you're upset with it. And he goes through this whole thing. He basically proves that obviously people have been doing this to dot com for murder and they got to shot it down. That's why it's got such poor reviews. And then he was just kind of he like has opened up this weird kind of conspiracy that people are hating on this movie. And it's not that bad. It's not a horrible film at all. It's very much a product of its time and it's pretty solid for its time. It's like I said, dot com for murder. I would recommend it if you like these kind of movies or if you're big into like the technology horror films um, that reflect their time. I mean, you have the ones in the 90s like Brain Scan and Lawnmower Man. And it's just so weird. Virtuosity. There's a lot of these kind of movies like this. But we start getting in this time frame. They do have a similarity as well. You know, internet horror, I guess you'd call it, which is bizarre. Very popular now today. I think that there's always going to be internet horror now. Okay, the next one up is from MVD Rewind. And this is Men at Work. Directed by Emilio Estevez, starring Emilio Estevez, Charlie Sheen, Keith David, a couple other familiar character actors here and there. Now, this one is late 80s, if I'm not mistaken. I, I believe it has, it has to be. I, I, 1990. Now, I saw this movie years ago um, uh, when I was a kid. It was always on TV. Um, and I remember just the Garbage Man duo. Um, when I was a kid, I always loved Emilio Estevez. And, uh, he was just like kind of a highlight. Somebody that me and my brother would always rent because Young Guns and Maximum Overdrive. He was just seen Mighty Ducks. He seemed to be everywhere. So, of course, I was going to see Men at, Men at Work when it was on television, always watch it. He's with his real-life brother, Charlie Sheen, of course, their father being, you know, Martin Sheen, their uncle being Joe Estevez, family of actors here. So, uh, basically what happens is these guys are kind of like loner, like loser, garbage men with big dreams. Uh, basically, Emilio Estevez is a big-time surfer. Charlie Sheen is also kind of like a ladies' man. They're both kind of like sleep around a lot of whatnot, of course. But, um... It's weird because in the very beginning in this movie, it's like early 90s, right? And he's a peeping top. Charlie Sheen's always like watching and very much a rear window kind of style story here. He's always watching his neighbor and watching what she does, infatuated with her. And you kind of see a glimpse of the whole little apartment. You kind of, like I said, very rear window. Um, Not as effective or as good as rear window, but what really is. So essentially, one day, him and uh, Emilio Estevez basically witness this uh, beating of a woman, of uh, a woman by the senator, or he's he's basically a congressman or something. He's gonna run for senator, and we we find out that this guy is in bed with this corrupt, you know, guy who runs this like factory that's been dumping toxic waste in the water, and he's gonna he's gonna turn him in and all this kind of stuff like that. Um, but before he can, he is murdered promptly, and this kind of um, basically has Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen find his body in the garbage, and they think they're responsible because they did something foolish so they're worried about it they're trying to clear their name and while on top of this they have like uh somebody watching over them because they get so much in trouble um because sly richardson their chief or their boss basically it feels very much like a buddy cop movie to be honest he basically had sent his like brother-in-law to watch them who's an ex-vietnam vet and keith david and keith david is absolutely ridiculous and very funny in this um says some lines that probably wouldn't fly nowadays some things that probably wouldn't fly nowadays but essentially it's just these three uh well basically the two and then the mismatch Keith David kind of doing a comedy of errors while the, the bad guys run around in, in stupidity. Um, there's This movie's all about like pairs and duos and crews uh, traveling because we have the uh, initial hitmen that are hired by the bat, the main bad. Then we have another pair of garbage men that are always out to get Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen. They're always back and forth doing pranks on each other. Very much like a bad boys situation or a running scared situation with Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal. So, you know, like that other duo of guys who would have their own movie that are basically just these guys that are competing with them. So we have those guys running around. Then on top of that, we have Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen that separate. So then we have like Charlie Sheen running around with the love interest. And then we have Emilio Estevez running around with Keith David. And then we have these pair of cops that are really goofy 
and dumb that do not like these garbage men. So it's just like this comedy of errors of all these people running into each other and getting in accidents and, and all sorts of nonsense. It's very much a product of the late 80s, early 90s, where we have like these comedies that turn into action films. And there are stakes, you know, people get messed up, but it's not... This one is not too extreme in, in a lot of ways, but I, I kind of miss these buddy cop kind of action films, you know, like Rush Hour and Bad Boys 2 and 3 were there in that same vein, but uh, Beverly Hills Cop, all these kind of movies like this, right? Um, uh, what was the one with uh, Damon Wayans uh, that I watched on uh, Mo Money? All these kind of movies like this that had like this very bulletproof, there's hundreds of them, and they just, it is a genre that still continues to go. I guess the nice guys would be one, but uh, I always enjoyed them, which speaking of nice guys, both had Keith David in it as well as this one. So I, I, like Keith David steals the show for me. He's got a lot of funny lines. Uh, he's got a lot of ridiculousness. He's over the top. I'm, I'm sure it would be insensitive now to portray a Vietnam vet this unhinged and whatnot. But uh, yeah, the one unfortunate thing is the sound the surround sounds good. The picture looks good, all that stuff. But there's no special features. I, I don't know why. I'm not sure if this had a previous Blu-ray release. There's no features on the disc. You know, no commentary, no interviews. I'm sure everybody just didn't want to talk about it or whatnot. But regardless, um, it's it's a decent, solid release from MBD Rewind. It's a cool, fun movie very much a product of its time and uh, i do miss movies like this um and i remember watching these all the time very enjoyable very good stuff okay the next one is from mondo macabro this is from 1971 and this is don't deliver us from evil and they initially had this on dvd so this is an upgrade for them which i love seeing um and this movie is one that i don't think i had ever seen well i would have remembered it um this is a french film if i'm not mistaken and usually like you think like uh um, nunsploitation, right? You see the cover, you think like this, the girls are in a convent. And it is kind of, I wouldn't really necessarily call it nunsploitation, but I, I immediately thought it was going to be that. And I was like, there's not that many nunsploitation movies from France. Or there is exploitation movies from France, but to be honest, most of them, if they're not John Roland, or I wouldn't even call them exploitation, more arts, or, or certain directors, they kind of like, I tune out. I'm not going to lie. There's a couple uh, that I just uh, directors that make uh, exploitation movies in France around this time. They're just unbearable to me, but there are some really great ones as well, like brigade of death. But so this one don't deliver us from evil. So, uh, I was listening to the commentary. There's a commentary by Cat Allinger, and there's also some other features on here. And it's kind of opened my eyes on this one. Now I did enjoy it. It's a really dark, really serious, really beautifully well shot film. And there's a, a special feature on here. Let me make sure. Um, Basically, interview with writer-critic Paul Buck. And that interested me because he directly compares that this movie was inspired by the same story that inspired the uh, Peter Jackson film Heavenly Creatures. And that makes a lot of sense because the plot of this film is basically following two young girls who, one's from a more privileged home, and they're going to this comet over the summer. And they create this infatuation with each other they're like reading fantasy books but they seem to have like i don't even want to go here this sexual tension amongst each other you know and uh one starts to kind of manipulate the other one a little bit more i think as a darker side and they start to do these awful dark things they worship satan and at first you're thinking this could be this weird playful kind of just like typical kid you know going against the grain stuff here <clears throat> But as it progresses, it gets much, much darker where they actually start to, like, you know, hurt other people and hurt animals. And at the very end of this movie, I, I think there's, like, two or three scenes in this movie that I don't think anyone really would forget. Um, like I said, it's gorgeously shot. It's well acted. It's really uncomfortable in a lot of aspects because we have these people that are portrayed as young girls and they're naked and they're very sexual. And it's just, you know, and, and like, it's sexual in, in a lot of bad ways because there's a lot of men here that are take, trying to take advantage of them in these gross ways. And almost every 
every guy in the movie, Cat Ellinger points out, is just a moron and stupid. And these girls are the most intelligent things in the film. And you think about it, yes, and they have a, a huge imagination, and they just don't really belong here. They don't belong surrounded by the people they're surrounded by. They don't really have the outlet to carry out what they want to do, and then the suppression of the religion, all this kind of shit. So it's it's an interesting film, and it, it's it's I would I, it has a lot of the same themes that a lot of these other ones have. But really, to me, it feels more like a Spanish or an Italian, uh, you know, exploitation or horror film. And I don't even want to call this exploitation because although it has these elements, it feels you know smart and and you know has obviously not not that an exploitation movie can't be smart and have like super much uh, like a bunch of integrity. I feel like exploitation movies, you know, in general, people think that just by the title that they're just not going to have that stuff, but they always do for the most part, you know. Uh, so it has a lot of depth in here, and the ending I said is, is amazing. Like the ending is just like holy shit. Um, yeah, just a beautiful looking movie, a really kind of a hard watch to be honest like not in the aspect it's not the easiest film to watch it doesn't like it's a very slice of life it's long it's like a hundred minutes but i don't mean it by like a bad movie it's like boring or something like that i mean it's got some difficult subject matter and it's very you know uh just like following their lives for a certain point of time but you see like how their parents treat them and and just how they do the psych like psychological aspects of the girls especially the one um the one from the richer family who's like petting the kitten and then with the birds and what happens with the second bird it's really bothersome so if you have any worries about animal cruelty i would skip this one due to the birds and everything like that but yeah it's a really good film it looks great uh, it sounds great it's a gorgeous film uh, according to this it was never released on uh uh theatrically in the united states and the first blu-ray release is remastered from the fr- film's original negas which is very cool so um and we have an interview with the director joel sierra archival interview with the director as well archival interview with actress janine grupal uh Gupel. And then interview with writer-critic Paul Buck. And we also have an audio commentary by Kat Ellinger, which is much appreciated. This is right up her alley as far as the stuff she talks about. She does a very good job of breaking this one down. And this is an excellent film. You know, like I said, 71 also, you saw stuff like The Devil's coming out. And I believe Let's Scare Jessica just scared jessica to death so it's some really good films interesting films too so yeah this is good stuff don't deliver us from evil i would recommend checking it out for sure from onda macabre okay the next one is from well go usa and this is an indonesian film if i'm not mistaken you know lately into a lot of indonesian films have been making it over to the united states stuff like you know uh, satan slaves the the remake sequel deal um impedagor or impedigo however you want to say impedigo Peter Gore, I think is how you say it, and some other ones as well. Um, what is it? There's a, there's been a, a slew of them. A lot of stuff by Joe Co. Antoine. So this is Death Knot, and I had not heard much about it except that uh, it looked interesting enough. I guess it technically counts as 2023 for this year. So basically, this feels kind of very similar to a lot of the other Indonesian films I watched as far as the plot is concerned. We have you know this uh, family called back to it's very much standard in a lot of these kind of horror films in general I wouldn't even call it an Indonesian trope so essentially the mother uh, dies she still lives at this like small little village and the brother and sister and a brother-in-law got to go back you know take care of the uh, put everything together there's uncle waiting for them they go to this house it's small isolated rural village that's very superstitious very typical you know what I mean and what happens is uh, they learn that their mother was possibly a shaman and uh, she left a lot of bad juju and she committed suicide. So there's a lot of strange things going on and that's where the title comes from. Death Knot, of course. The knot you tie to hang yourself, but it's more than that as well. So uh, I, I find out there's a strange curse um, on this family. 
you know, we, we've seen this kind of stuff before in a lot of these movies, so I would say it's fairly standard. Um, there's some kind of creepy imagery, of course, you know, when people are possessed um, by this kind of god. There's a like a weird kind of weird smile and dance and everything like that. The movie is a little slow-paced, um, and, and it probably only feels slow-paced in general because it's a plot that we've all seen before, you know what I mean? Um, what was the one? It's not Satan's Slaves. I, I know I'm mixing up one of them. Oh, geez, I can't think of the title. It's not in Pitagore, which also has that, right, where they go to the small, like, isolated rural village and they have problems. But it was last year. Um, Queen of Black Magic, the remake of that, also had a lot of similarities to this, right? So, like I said, all these movies have so many similarities, and it's always the kind of typical plot, loss of family member, and weird shit starts happening. We realize the family has a curse, and they have to solve it. Uh, this one goes to some really dark places. Uh, those Indonesian movies never pull back their punches. They never are worried to kill anyone, and that's the same here. Uh, the ending is pretty dark, pretty cool, actually. Uh, some some unique stuff going on. And uh, I, I did like most of the characters. They were solid, didn't dislike anyone, didn't think any of the acting was tremendously poor. Um, but it, it feels very standard from what I've seen in the, the handful of Indonesian films. I've seen it fits right in that with the same plot. I, I mean, I could probably take a bunch of little aspects of all of them and make this movie... But that's not necessarily a negative. It's in a nice location. It's it's well done. It's well acted. There's no real negativity about the movie. I've seen a lot of negative reviews on Letterboxd, and I just don't really understand. Maybe it's just because it feels you know standard for an Indonesian horror film, but doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It's a very solid film. It's very you know generally has some creepy moments and a decent story. But it's nothing that we haven't seen before. But that doesn't mean it's not you know it's bottom of the barrel or anything. It's a decent movie. Okay, here we go. So we're covering these on the 22 shots of moods and horror. And uh, the first one up is going to be the 1979 TV movie Salem's Lot, directed by Toby Hooper, with amazing cast in here. You got James Mason, uh, Reggie Nalder, Jeffrey Lewis, um, geez, who else pops up here? Kenneth McMillan, George Dezuka, I never say his name right, from Deer Hunter. I know there's a slew of other people in here, too. Fred Willard, um, I know I'm forgetting some. Let me look on the back here. David Soule. Um, there we got, who else is in here? Bonnie Bedelia, so many familiar faces and familiar, you know, uh, people in here. So Salem's fucking lot. This is the biggest blind spot I have in my Stephen King filmography. I've never saw Salem's Lot. I do not know why. It's my biggest blind spot in my Toby Hooper filmography. And it's probably my biggest blind spot in my Kenneth McMillan filmography, right? Whatever. It's a movie that I should have saw years ago. I do not know why I put it off. I, I love Stephen King's work, a lot of it, and I like a lot of Toby Hooper's work, so it just should have been there. So essentially, the story of Salem's Lot is that a writer shows up to do a book he on this house, uh, the Marston house, which uh, he had a run-in with. He was a kid. He's returning, and it haunted the shit out of him. So he comes back here, and pretty much right away he realizes this town is not right. There's something off about it. Um, there's a new antique dealer that just moved in. Kind of a uh, Stephen King trope when we have think needful things, right? There's an antique dealer in that, but he's not who he says he is. Now, either is James Mason in this antique dealer. James Mason is the antique dealer, and he keeps talking about his business partner, Barlow. Barlow will be here soon, and then you guys will meet him, and you'll love this place. Yada, yada, keeps going on and on and on. And uh, you, you kind of learn that uh, this town has a haunted past, that the, the house, the Marsden house, has always harbored evil men in it. And uh, he comes to the conclusion that, you know, the house... 
it was evil and it brings evil men. So so we have that idea there too, right? Which is the Shining, the, uh, the uh, Overlook Hotel is kind of similar to that too. So it's another Stephen King little trope here. It takes place in Maine, very, uh, you know, New England kind of territory, small town territory. I love the cast in here. Everybody's so good. Kenneth McMillan to me steals the show. He plays the constable. He is absolutely amazing in this. The way he like starts to grill uh, James Mason, Starker, Star, Starker, and the way he like grills David Soul. He's just really good in this. He's such a good character actor. This movie's character actor heaven, to be honest. Everybody's so good in it, and they they let it like they let a lot of things play. They get a lot of details about the characters of the town, so you know who everybody is. And the vampires look so damn creepy. Reggie Nolder from Burb of the Crystal Plumage and Mark of the Devil is in here, and he plays you know Barlow, and he's an Osprey style vampire they don't show him right away they wait like an hour and a half for the three hour runtime or two hours to show him which is unique as the iconic imagery of the kids floating out the window that are terrifying the eyes of the vampires are scary as shit now here i don't want to spoil too much but there's a scene towards the end of the film where they're in the marsden house and the door the back of the door is open and we see it but uh, our character who's in peril doesn't and there's the vampires crawling towards him and you see like Jeffrey Lewis has turned and it's the scariest shit. It's a really great shot. Also, I noticed how influential this was to Fright Night, which I love Fright Night, but Fright Night's essentially rear window with just a great cast and, and dialogue but literally they steal a scene verbatim i mean but then again i'm sure they probably lifted the scene from say from like a hammer movie or something that i forgot i watched but the scene with uh james mason going down the stairs is literally lifted in fright night now fright night's more 80 so it has the gooier effects by you know steve johnson but it's the same fucking scene like, oh, I forgot to mention that uh, Ed Flanders is in here, too. He's also excellent. Like I said, the, the cast is great. The characters are great. You like all of them. You really feel like this town is lived in. Um, I really like this movie. I was very happy with it. It was a huge blind spot. Um, on Letterboxd, I listed it as Thriller Mystery. It's like, bro, this is a horror film through and through. This is some very horrifying, you know, uh, imagery in here that scarred kids forever but i love the idea of the whole town being turned to vampires slowly that evil creeping in and you go to look for other people and you realize that you may be the only one in town reminds me of something creepy like messiah of evil or even you know later like that movie children of the night from 1991 um the fangoria one i think that's what it's called yeah it has that kind of aspect too that's very salem's lot but uh yeah this movie is great i, I enjoyed it for a tv movie it has high production uh everything's great about it it's just really professionally well done and everything and well directed um one of toby hooper's best movies for sure check out salem's lot great stuff okay so what is you know 1979 salem's lot without 1987 return to salem's lot that's right this is the sequel to salem's lot directed by larry fucking cohen how weird is that now originally larry cohen's name was in the hat for to direct the original salem's lot it's a good thing they probably didn't go with larry cohen uh for that one because toby hooper did an excellent job so larry cohen uh, making a sequel to Salem's Lot like eight years later. Um, it's so fucking weird. It's so bizarre. And the long line of like sequels that don't feel like the originals at all, 28 weeks later, Return of the Link Dead Part 2, Chud 2, um, all these movies that, you know, as my friend Dave Z would say, jump the shark. Uh, this one right here, um, it definitely jumping the shark. It's not even jumping the char- shark. The shark's not even in its viewpoint after a while. It's, this thing's jumping the moon. Um, 
what was the term? I forgot how the jump the shark term actually came to be. I'm completely forgetting. What was the movie that actually gave the jump the shark moment? I remember it was explained to me once, and I'm completely not using it properly. Anyways, so Return to Salem's Lot. Now, saying all that, do I hate Return to Salem's Lot? No. But the first 15 minutes in, I was like, what What the fuck is this? What is this? I was like, I, this is this is supposed to be a comedy, right? This is a comedy, right? It's Larry Cohen. It's got to be... I look it up. Yes, it's a comedy. Thank you. I'm like, all right, all right. That kind of eases out a bit. But then I'm starting to think, I'm like, this feels a lot like Chud 2 or or um, Sundown, Vampire in Retreat, that kind of style, that weirdness. Um, now, Michael Moriarty's in here, the Larry Cohen regular. He's in stuff like The Stuff and Q, and It's Alive 3. He's in a bunch of other movies, too. Very quintessential New York actor, always wears a hairpiece in Larry Cohen's movies. Really good actor, really just one of a kind. Um, now, Jeremy commented he sounds a lot like Christopher Walken, and I wouldn't disagree with that, um, but they're both from New York kind of actors. But he is he's a one of a kind kind of strange actor, just a bizarre actor, and I, my understanding is he used to like to do his lines by himself. You know, he, he wouldn't didn't want a partner, like he'd just say his lines to and whatever. Um, so then also Sam Fuller's in here. That's right, Sam fucking Fuller, the director of stuff like The Big Red One and Shock, uh, Shock Cordner. So it's just like, what the hell is going on? Um, Sam Fuller is an actor in here, and he steals the show. I mean, he's not as good as Michael Moriarty. He's not an actor, but he's very funny, and he shows up to Salem's Lot, and he's a Nazi hunter. He's looking for a bunch of, he's looking for a Nazi who apparently has been turned to a vampire. So, Michael Moriarty shows up because he inherited a house. Hey, remember that trope? We just heard Death Knot, uh, all those kind of movies, right? Why else would you go to the middle of nowhere? Michael Moriarty is kind of like a shock photographer, shock-like journalist. He goes places and films really crazy shit that would be in a Tales from the Crypt episode or something like that. Like, you know, they always have those weird rituals in Tales from the Crypt episodes and somebody gets cursed. It's every Tales, every other Tales from the Crypt episode. So that's basically what he does. He films these weird kind of crazy things. He gets pulled off assignment because his uh, son is in deep shit. He's supposed to take his son uh somewhere and take care of him before he goes to a psychological you know like a, a basically you know an insane asylum or some sort of medical hospital for his problems um the kid's got a potty mouth he's never been in another movie before or after this he basically decides michael Moriarty says hey my aunt claire is not really my aunt she gave me this house years ago in jewelers room's lot or salem's lot let's go there they go there the place is a is a crap hole but the town's really weird the shit the cops in here played by james dixon another larry Cohen regular and Hal Holbrook's son David Holbrook, who I, if you guys know, he's in Girls Night Out. Yeah. Um, so basically, there there are a couple cops, and the, there's an evil judge there. And it turns out that they want uh, Michael Moriarty to write the Vampire Bible. So a lot of weird, zany stuff happens in the beginning. There's uh, people getting attacked. There's a rubbery vampire that looks really fucking silly. Can't believe this movie played in theaters for a short period of time. It does not feel like a theatrical movie. It's kind of bonkers. Imagine seeing this in the theater, right, in 1987. So uh, basically there's a lot of downtime, a lot of talking while they seduce the him and the boy, and there's a love interest. And at the very end, it kind of goes balls to the wall where Sam Fuller shows up, and they're going to do some vampire hunting. They're going to do some, you know, uh, what the fuck is the guy's name from uh, I Am Legend, right? Uh, the Matheson story. Uh, Neville? Neville? Neville is the bad guy. What? Ben Corp Corpman's the bad guy. Neville. Ben Neville. Ben Neville. Whatever the fuck his name is. Basically, they go house to house and look for vampires. They start doing all this kind of shit. It's a really zany, weird movie full of bizarre characters that don't. They're just. It's a weird movie. 
It's entertaining. Sam Fuller's funny. There's some decent effects at the end. Uh, but for the most part, it's just a bizarre weird. It's too weird and too goofy for me to dislike. But I can't give this like a wholehearted, this is a great follow-up to Salem's Lot. I mean, if you're really precious about Salem's Lot and you really love the first one, I do, but I don't have like a connection to it. I just was like, that's a great movie. So I pop in part two. I'm just like, what the fuck is this? Like, I love Chud 2. I don't care. Like, I know that Re- Chud 2 is nothing like Chud 1. I love Return of the Day 2. I know it's not as good as 1. It's, it's completely jumping the shark. I like it. So how can I sit there, just because this is a first time watching, be like, law, this movie sucks. It It's really bad in some aspects, but it's really entertaining in some other aspects. Um, it, it's Return to Salem's Lot. The Screen Factory Blu-ray has no special features. What a shame. I'd love to hear somebody talk about this fucking weird-ass movie. But uh, yeah, it's goofy. It's weird. Um, enjoy it or don't. I don't know what to tell you. Okay, the next one up is the Patreon pick, and I think this is Chris Carroll picked this one, and it's Liverleaf. Um, now, Liverleaf, boy, oh boy, what year was this? Like 2016. This is a Japanese film. And this is this is a rough movie, and I mean that in a in a positive way. It's a movie about bowling. But it's got so much more aspects and so much more layers to it. And this is a movie I think that a lot of people would watch and be kind of bothered by it, right? Because it doesn't really just tackle bowling like straight on. It has a lot of different like elements to it. And, and it's basically hereditary in a lot of ways that people learn from their, their home lives. And this small town is just kind of really cantankerous and everything like that so um i i sissy has some of these elements too besides the social media aspect take that out but just like maybe the people who are bullied are, are like whatever it has this different layer to it to be honest so essentially what we have here is i can't think of the main character's name terrible with names in this one so this uh girl has moved from tokyo to this small rural town because of her father's work and she's bullied horribly by the classmates and it's a very small class she says basically there's 10 kids here they all grew up together on the outsider but essentially what it is is about you know seven or eight kids are kind of generally focused on her and uh, there's a ringleader that's quiet but basically everybody does these awful things to get her attention it reminds me of something like Heather's in a way but more serious so like all the all the boys and girls just treat her so terribly to kind of like get you know gratification or, or some recognition from her from this girl so um basically what happens is uh they they do all these awful things to her to, they put they beat her up in a pit and like throw her stuff down there and before long they do something unspeakable that there's no turning back and this movie turns into a crazy revenge film a very violent slasher revenge film where where kids are killed and it doesn't stop there. It's basically, you know, how that goes. If you plan on uh, getting revenge, dig yourself a grave, too. And that's exactly what's going to happen here because a lot of the people that are helping or a lot of the people that are around are not who they seem. It, it, it's not everybody's motives are the same. Not everybody did the reason, things they did for a reason. And it becomes this complex thing, this tragedy almost. It's like Shakespearean tragedy. Um, it's pretty, uh, you know, uh, stylized in the way the violence and fights are done. It's gory. I enjoyed it. I thought it was beautiful in the snow. I thought it was poetic in a lot of ways. I, I love this movie. Liverleaf was a great movie. I really enjoyed it. I think that maybe it maybe run a little long for some people, but I thought it was great. I thought it was tremendous. I liked all the characters. I thought it it was really sad um, and beautiful and just tragic. So I would really recommend checking out Liver Leaf. You know, if you like revenge films or you like, you know, Japanese kind of violent films, it kind of fits both those or poetic ones. I think it's all that. It's Liver Leaf. I would recommend checking it out. Really, really high recommend. Great stuff. So, yeah. All right. Let's get in these questions, comments, concerns, all that stuff. Movie Junkie Reviews. I enjoyed those bug movies. Managed to get the Nest or They Nest last year in a DVD set. It was decent. Pretty decent. 
What the flick? I love Tombstone, but the scene where Kurt Russell starts screaming, no, I laugh out loud every time. Thank you for another video. Me and my cousin used to do that sometimes. We'd be like, no. And then we'd be like, Curly Bill, son of a bitch. No. That part is insane. Um, so Travis Linscombe, Ella at the 4K rant. Your reaction was great. And no disrespect to Peter. I know, like I said, we all got to vent sometimes. Shit gets so like insane. But at the same time, it was just like out of nowhere. It's like, Nick Moore, I'll have to check Tombstone out. It would seem I think it's been out of uh, out on Blu-ray for a good while. Yes, yes, it has. And it's not the director's cut though, which adds two more scenes in there that aren't in the theatrical. But that's okay. Um, the top twenty-five had nice surprises. I'll be checking some of them out too. But where and when will I find the time? Exactly. Uh, questions: Does Halloween features an unlike unkillable boogeyman? The neighborhood where you grew up uh, have a real-life boogeyman that became legendary? Not really. You know, it didn't really. I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, there was always like common, like kind of like guys you didn't walk in their yard or whatnot, or people you thought just strange. But I wouldn't say a real life boogeyman. Do you have a list of 25 or less films that you'd never watch again or should be blasted in the space? I mean, there. I don't have a list on me. I don't make lists like that typically. I try not to be too negative. I don't think any movie should be blasted in the space. Um, there's probably at least 25 movies I don't ever need to watch again. I mean, look at any of the retro years I do. Go to the movies that I rated the lowest, like Mama Dracula or some shit from 1980. I'm never watching that again, ever. Three, which home media company would you like to work for if given the choice? Vinegar Syndrome all day. I know a couple of the people that work there, and I like them. They're very nice. I like what they do. They get a lot of the movies I enjoy, so we'll go Vinegar Syndrome. They do a great job. I'd like to be a part of it, of course. Till next week, enjoy the cold because it means you can curl up and watch movies. Yep. Ken Coakley, another part of Tombstone I forgot to mention last week was when Wyatt spares Ike Clanton's life. He says, you'll, you tell him I'm coming and hell's coming with me. You hear? He's coming with me. Uh, uh, hell's coming with me. Then it cuts to them riding out of the sunset to start one of my favorite montages. Yeah. I, I love that whole line. It's like, hey, where's Matt? Uh, where's, um, what's, what's uh, Stigwell say? Frank Stilwell. He says, uh, where's Wyatt? Right behind you, Stu, what, Stigwell. Uh, Stilwell. And he shoots him. I love that part. And he's like, you see that? United States Marshal. My favorite line is, I see a red sash. I kill the man wearing it. That's such a good fucking moment. Uh, back in 2004, my beloved Red Sox were headed to New York to face the Yankees. And one of the Red Sox players, who was a Texan and a fan of Tombstone, said, tell the people of New York we're coming and hell's coming with us. It's great. Um, I, I also should mention, I love Robert Mitchum's narration in the beginning. Uh, it's so, And the end, is it's lovely. He was obviously supposed to play old man Clanton in that movie and fell off the horse the first day of filming. Fucked himself up, so they gave a lot of his lines to the Curly Bill Powers Booth. When it comes to Michael Rooker, it's hard to find someone with more impressive body of work. I met him twice at conventions. He had stories about Cliffhanger, Days of Thunder, Sea of Love, and others. I also met Michael Bean twice, as well as Billy Zane. I would love to see Val Kilmer at the, at the show. Yeah, I mean, Michael Bean is so great in that. He's like got that weird suicidal presence about him. He's like, and hell, follow with him. When he does that, that the whole thing is great. Hey, Johnny, what that uh, what that Mexican mean? A sick horse going to come get us, according to Revelations. The Bible. Behold the pale horse. Man, the son upon him was death. And hell falls with him. I could do Tombstone all day. It's one I, I told you, it's like my, one of my favorites. And he, uh, Ken Coakley also, you were uh, right about John Houseman being a ghost story. He also won a Best Supporting Actor in 1973 for playing the antagonist professor at Harvard Law School in The Paper Chase, which was filmed on a location in Cambridge, Massachusetts, my birthplace. I saw the movie when it first came out because of all the hype around the film as Houseman was all over Boston TV at the time. 
He also, like Richard France, worked with Orson. Richard France is in Dawn of the Dead and the Crazies. Worked with Orson Welles throughout the 1930s and was part of the famous Panic broadcast of War of the Worlds, a radio show that caused mass hysteria and caused some people to die from fright. It was an audio version of a found footage film. New York police raided the studio and handcuffed Wells. Houseman became Wells' moral support as Wells had to apologize for the panic. I saw a video clip of Wells making the apology and tear in his eyes was very real. He was on the verge of being prosecuted and having his career destroyed. The broadcast can be heard on YouTube and it sounded real. The broadcast was October 30, 1938 and Houseman died October 31, 1988, 50 years and a day after the broadcast. Houseman was also married to Zeta Johan from 1932 film The Mummy. Classic. Another bit of trivia is that Orson Welles wanted to do a film noir of Batman starring Gregory Peck as Batman. Now that sounds really interesting. Um, so basically, um, I'm just going to do the Patreon drawing and the update right here because I don't really have that much for you guys, to be honest. It's kind of a very small update here. But uh, here we go. It's uh, It was on sale, and I'm not too familiar with this series, but for the price, it was like $12. I picked up uh, Cowboy Bebop, um, the complete series. Now, I don't know much about the show, to be honest, but I was like, for the price, I can't really pass this up. Um, I had heard good things about it, but hey, it's Cowboy Bebop, and the total runtime is, it's not super long. It's not, I guess, a long series, 26 episodes, so... But I was figuring, why not? 650 minutes is longer. For, for 12 bucks. I'm going to check it out. So let's do the Patreon picks. And remember, Petrie, you have a Patreon pick. Uh, so shoot it for me. Um, because I already did a lot of scare Jessica to death, and I drew it. So you give me another one that you want. So let's do five out. And if I if I forgot somebody from last week, let me know. If you haven't been drawn out in, like, you know, three or four drawings, let me know, and I'll, I'll bump you ahead. What do we got here? So we got uh, Petrie Lamprey. Again, let's scare Jessica to death. So now you got two, Petrie. You got two. Uh, Nick Mua and the Screaming Starts. Okay. Nick Mua put and the Screaming Starts. Uh, so Dan the Cameraman. Uh, gay porn. I think he wanted me to review a gay porn because it was uh, Pride Month when he put this in there. So there we go. <laughs> I'm going to draw three more out because I don't know if Petrie's going to get to me for those other two. He hasn't got back to me for the other one. So, um, David Luton, not drawn out next time. Add to the front. Okay. Fear Eats the Soul. Fear Eats the Soul. Is that a, is that a um, fast, fast Binder movie? I, it might be. So that's three. Four, Dan the Cameron. Director liked from Spotlight. Director liked from Spotlight. Now, I don't remember what the fuck I meant by this when I wrote that, so I'll have to ask Dan the Cameraman. He's still around. And one more. Oh, Dan the Cameraman got a bunch, so that's weird. He got two in this one drawing. And last, Travis Linscombe, Violated Angels. And that's a famous Japanese director, which I've always wanted to watch his work. So, Is that the one that's based partially on the Richard... Um, what the fuck? is not Richard Chase. Richard Speck. The Japanese version of the Richard Speck story, which is an awful goddamn serial murder or mass murder deal but anyways uh guys we're gonna get out of here we're gonna hop into you know me show what there's nothing to hop into we're gone we're gone all right guys thank you very much for watching and as always have a good one hey